Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The big story then worldwide, the president's men heading to Beijing. Top officials from the administration arriving for trade talks as China says it's not willing to back down on key issues and investors are left asking, what is the minimum condition for success of this visit? We're joined now by Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont, Securities Chief Economist. So Stephen, let's put that question to you. What is the minimum condition for success at this visit? Good morning. I I think if they they get back home and they haven't started like a an elev- an escalation of the trade war. I- I'd probably be pretty happy. I-, I don't really expect much out of this. That's because- how low the bar is, Stephen. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, as, as you said, I- the team is, uh, it's kind of an, a unique team of individuals who aren't really un- necessarily on the same page. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm not sure that the idea here was to go over there and negotiate some huge agreement. I think they're just trying to uh, kind of set the stage for the next, uh, the next steps of this process. Um, respected positions on trade seem to have hardened, but on other issues there seems to be agreements. In fact, progress on the issue of, say, let's talk about North Korea. That could be a positive, and it could be a positive when, when trade starts getting discussed as well. Do you see those two issues folded into one another? Oh, absolutely. And and President Trump has been pretty explicit about that, in, uh, not only with China, but with others, where he said, we're willing to give you a break on trade if you help us out in other areas. What's your time horizon for how long it's going to take to negotiate this? This is a big visit. By any means, it's an important visit. But how long will it take to really sort? Well, it's going to be months, I think, before they figure out kind of what the deal is with these tariffs. And I think these are discussions that are going to be going on for years. Within this is the Stephen Stanley view of the strength of our economy. So let's start over on the right-hand side of the equation, net exports, which has to do with China. We need more export growth. Isn't that the Amherst-Pierpont solution to all this? Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, I, it, we're we're at a stage in the business cycle where the economy is pretty strong. Domestic demand is strong and probably stronger than the overall is global economy. So that we import German BMWs, or you know, pick the vehicle from Germany, Volkswagens, isn't that a sign of a strong America? Sure, sure. And I think you know, certainly the the administration or or the president in particular wants to get the trade deficit down, and very understandable um, thought. But in this stage of the business cycle, typically, the trade deficit is widening. Okay, so we want to celebrate the imports coming in. I guess we all get that. Then the solution is exports. How do you boost the, the gradient of exports? Right. Well, I think, you know, one thing is you have to make the U.S. a, uh, a favorable place to do business. And certainly, I think the tax reform helped that in some, in some aspects. Um, and, and you have to have companies that can compete around the world and then I think what the administration would say is then you have to make sure that the rules of trade are fair. And I think that's that's why they're going after China in the way that they are, is to try to even the playing field in their minds. How important is the FX market as a backdrop to all of this? Well, you know, it's interesting. The dollar has been weakening for the most part over the last year or two at a time when you would expect it to be strengthening if you're looking at the traditional things that I as an economist would look at. You're looking at rates. Um, you're looking at yeah. relative growth. 
those would those things would suggest the dollar should have been strengthening. No. It has turned recently, and it'll be interesting to see if that is proves to be a sustained move. John, I want to interrupt here. Uh, we had two tweets from the president, which implied a third tweet. We now have the third tweet four minutes ago, which seems to have an ending to it. These tweets are so lengthy, John. I'm not going to read them all. It just takes too long and too much valuable time from Stephen Stanley. The president in three lengthy, John, here's the key phrase, carefully written tweets, uh, goes over this news from Mr. Giuliani last night about Mr. Cohen and about Ms. Daniels uh, as well. So we have three tweets out. I'll read the final sentence, John. Money from the campaign or campaign contributions played no role in this transaction, yeah. but it doesn't read, I, I will state this, not as an editorial comment, but just observing the Bloomberg terminal, it doesn't read as a Trump tweet, as a typical Trump layout tweet. It looks very formal. I think that's the takeaway from a lot of people reading these tweets this morning, but I will also say this just really isn't on Wall Street's radar in a material Absolutely, way. but I think a, we, a my point is we finally have the third tweet, I think. Of three tweets. I could be wrong. Let's get to something that is on yes. Wall Street's radar. And the FX market today, some significant dollar weakness starting to come back through after a couple of weeks of dollar strength, Stephen. A lot of people thought a Federal Reserve decision would be a total non-event because there was no news conference. But the Federal Reserve are being quite clear about a symmetrical inflation target. For our listeners, can you talk us through what a symmetrical inflation target is, as opposed to just targeting 2%? Sure. Well, I think traditionally people have viewed a 2% inflation target as being kind of lopsided. Anything above 2, the tolerance was very low. So if it's 1.5, that's okay. But if it's 2.5, that's a real problem for the Fed. And what the Fed is basically telling us is that they view themselves as having some room on either side of 2%. So we've been running below 2% now for the most part throughout this expansion, um, and the Fed has wanted to get up to 2%. And what they're telling us is that, hey, look, if we get to 2.1, we're not hitting the panic button right away. Yeah. Um, and I think the key there is, it, it, partly, is where you think the trend is headed. So if we get to 2.1 or to 2.2 or even to 2.3, and the Fed thinks that we're going to level off there, that's probably fine. If we're at two and a quarter and they think we're headed to two and a half or maybe even to three, that becomes a problem. So here's the important question, I think, for, for many people in the market. And the reason we saw a weaker dollar off the back of a lot of this, did the Federal Reserve just endorse an inflation overshoot? I think they did. I think they said, and, and, and a number of individuals have, have made that very clear that, hey, look, we've run below 2% for years. It's fine if we run above 2% for a while. Which takes us to Europe, where we had the inflation print this morning, Tom King. Yeah, that's wow. something, huh? I mean, Easter's important. We have to think about that. Easter last year, of course, was in April. Easter this yeah, year but we're having, shifted we're towards We're having lower March. inflation in the United Kingdom as well, right? Yes. So it's a theme. And we knew where Easter was, and the economists still got it dead wrong. So the inflation story in Europe is just not picking up, um, Stephen. I just wonder how much of a problem this is for President Draghi. Well, in many ways, Europe has been, it felt, it's felt like Europe has been behind the U.S. in this cycle by a couple of years, maybe. You see it in kind of where they are in terms of monetary policy. And, and you also see that, I think, in terms of where the economy is in certain ways. You've seen stronger growth in Europe over the last year, but they're still having trouble getting inflation to move up toward its target. And, hey, that's exactly where the Fed was a few years ago. Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont Securities Chief Economist. Great to have, us with, have you with us on the program.
It is without question the publishing event of the season on China, beyond timely here with Secretary Mnuchin's uh, trip to the daily back and forth of what some would say is a mercantile Washington, a mercantile Trump dealing with President Xi, this new, more definitive, more entrenched leader of China. There is no one who can brief us on this, on what she calls the third revolution than Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations. Elizabeth, congratulations on 250 pages of update on President Xi. What was the biggest surprise of President Xi in putting together the third revolution? I think the the biggest surprise really was just how transformative he's managed to be in just five short years. Uh, You know, when he came in, people thought this is going to be a reformer along the lines of Deng Xiaoping. We're going to see more reform and opening up, a low-profile foreign policy. Uh, And in fact, he's, you know, moved the country 180 degrees in the opposite direction, you know, reasserting the Communist Party into the economy, into society, much more ambitious foreign policy, much more more repressive and authoritarian at home. Uh, So he's really, uh, the Third Revolution really is all about the game-changing nature of Xi Jinping. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin, no doubt, has a copy of your book, well footnoted and marked on the plane uh, going out when he's uh, stopping the fistfights between Lawrence Kudlow and Peter uh, Navarro. If that's the case, how would you brief the secretary on the relationship of Beijing to the major Pacific Rim cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong? What's that new dynamic? Uh, I think, you know, for Beijing has always been the center of political power and, you know, Shanghai, Hong Kong, more the economic centers. I think under Xi Jinping, Beijing has only become stronger. Uh, and we see Beijing, you know, making a number of moves, for example, in its relationship with Hong Kong to limit the autonomy uh, of Hong Kong. And in essence saying, you know, we know that you're a gateway uh, to China, but we're not going to need you uh, in that respect for very much longer. And you've got to get yourselves in, in line politically. Uh, I think that the Xi Jinping, you know, is not a huge fan of the go-go economic growth uh, that uh, Deng yeah. Xiaoping represented that's embodied in Shanghai. He's got a different view. Well, what is that different view and what does it mean for these Western business locations in the Third, Re- the third Revolution? Well, I think, you know, again, in reinserting the party uh, into the state-owned enterprises, you know, telling joint ventures, you know, we want to have our party representatives on your board reviewing your investment decisions, uh, you know, the entire push uh, for the statist uh, control mm-hmm. of Chinese technology, made in China 2025, all of these things uh, are ill winds uh, for multinationals uh, who had hoped for a more open uh, you know, market opening, you know, less IP theft. Uh, they'd hope to see progress on some of these major uh, institutional types of changes that are needed, and they're not seeing them. If you're just joining us, Elizabeth Economy, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, must read 250 pages. Terrific briefing. Ian Bremer raves about it. And far more importantly, I think Dr. Bremer would agree with me, Orville Shell uh, says simple, simply, a well-researched book, which is Shell-esque, for she nailed it. Elizabeth, when you did this, you've got to fold in the new military might of China. You've got to fold in the fears that Peter Navarro has about the economics of China as well. How transparent, how knowledgeable is our true intelligence of the Chinese government system. Do we actually know what they're doing? 
I think in, in some respects we're, we're pretty knowledgeable. We have a pretty good sense for, you know, how China's developing its military, its new technologies, its new modes of operation, the really significant advances uh, that they've made under Xi Jinping. Uh, he's a big supporter of the Chinese military and, you know, said when he first came to power, you know, I'm going to develop a, a People's Liberation Army that's capable of fighting and winning wars. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've been a real beneficiary under Xi. You know, I think where we're less good, certainly, is understanding the internal dynamics at the very top level. How do, you know, the seven members of really? the yeah. Standing Committee of the Politburo get along? You know, what are the real differences of opinion around Xi Jinping? Uh, he's just amassed so much power uh, that it's really tough to tell, you know, where there might be some dissenting views. Does that make this economic uh, soiree that we're in right now nothing more than a show? He won't be there, right? Well, I, I think it doesn't, you know, mean that it's just going to be a show. The Chinese have said, you know, we're not going to negotiate, you know, under these threats. They, you know, pitched their position uh, when their top economic uh, guy, Liu He, uh, came to the United States back at the end of February. Um, and they've said, you know, we're going to stand tough. You know, this trade war isn't going to impact us uh, that much. We're strong and resilient. Uh, so that's their negotiating stance. Uh, they've learned from Trump, right? They're playing the brinksmanship at this point. Uh, but I think, look, They've got their own domestic economic problems. You know, Xi Jinping's trying to deleverage. They want to, you know, address poverty. They want to address the environment. They've got a lot of things on yeah. their docket. They, they're not, they don't have a big appetite for a big trade war. But so the, I definitely think there's room. But really quietly, folks, only 30, 40, 70 pages into the Third Revolution, Elizabeth, you have that single sentence that's timeless. Their number one driving force is to keep people employed and to keep rising incomes. In that regard, it's no different than the first, the second revolution, is it? Well, it's no different than the second revolution. The first revolution, Mao Zedong wasn't all that, that uh, concerned about rising okay, incomes. Fine. He was more concerned about political correctness. But definitely, uh, Deng Xiaoping, that was his major uh, objective. Uh, I think Xi Jinping just has a different vision of, of how to get there uh, than Deng Xiaoping did. You know, Deng Xiaoping wanted to unleash mm -hmm. the capitalist and entrepreneurial spirit of the Chinese people. Eh, corruption flourished. It was bad, but it's not the end of the world. Right. Inequality grew. Okay. Xi Jinping has a different idea. No corruption. You know, address inequality. And if it right. costs the Chinese economy a little bit, okay. Address right now our listeners who say, look, the human rights is appalling. We don't really know the protests. Uh, this is a, a country that really we don't have anything in common with in terms of culture and values, and we should take a rigid stance. What do you say to those people? I think, um, you know, pushing back against China uh, when it comes to human rights is essential. Uh, because it's not just about what China's doing on the home front in places like Xinjiang and Tibet and even, you know, more broadly with their new surveillance systems and this penetration of the Communist Party into every detail of the people's lives, but it's that they're trying to export uh, an element of this autocracy abroad. They're training officials in, uh, you know, Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia on how to manage populations and how to do propaganda. Uh, and they're trying to rewrite the rules of the game globally. You know, it's one of the things right. we look at. 
uh, in the book is, you know, changing uh, the way that the human rights uh, regime operates then, in the United Nations. Okay, but critically, this matters. This is really, really important. Then, how do we respond to this if we have an administration that says essentially we're bilateral or maybe even unilateral? That we've had a State Department, at least with Mr. Tillerson, that was removed. How do we affect our policy? How do we pivot or show our flag if the Chinese are more assertive with their culture? Absolutely. And I think it's a big challenge for us right now. We have to rely on people like, frankly, you know, Nikki Haley uh, in the United Nations. She really does wave the flag, uh, you know, very vigorously on issues of human rights when it comes to China. Uh, you know, we have to hold, uh, you know, work with our allies who also care a lot about these issues. And you know, the Europeans have stepped up uh, significantly on issues of human rights as well. So I think there are others out there in the international community who seem to be stepping into the breach. Of course, nobody can speak with as loud and as important a voice as the United States. So, um, you know, it would be great if President Trump would begin to understand the value of, of human rights uh, and what that means in terms of promoting America's uh, vision and strength Elizabeth, abroad. Uh, congratulations. Elizabeth Economy, the Third Revolution, Xi Jinping, and the new Chinese state, without question, the new must-read. Uh, very, it's very terse, folks. It's a very direct book uh, of great benefit about uh, really focused on uh, Mr. Xi and, and with a lot of perspective that I haven't seen uh, before. Elizabeth Economy, after the River Runs Black, after her wonderful books on energy, the third revolution, Xi Jinping and the new Chinese state. I'll feature that out on Twitter uh, today. Well, the Federal Reserve kept its benchmark interest rate unchanged yesterday, but acknowledged that inflation is beginning to creep higher. Well, would that in uh, that increase uh, mean increases in interest rates? And when would they come? Well, here to help us answer this question is uh, Kate Warren, the uh, Edward Jones Investments Chief Market Strategist. She joins us here in our 1130 studios. Kate, thanks very much for being here. What did you take away from yesterday's uh, Federal Reserve uh, sort of report? I think the main takeaway is that they're not very concerned with the uptick in inflation that we've seen, that they uh, sort of uh, emphasized that they wanted to see a balance around their 2% target. So they didn't highlight that increasing inflation might mean more interest rate increases. They didn't uh, give any kind of signal about how many they'll do in the future. And uh, I think it was actually a, a relatively reassuring and, if anything, a slightly less hawkish uh, set of uh, you know announcement than I would have expected. But we're still going to 25 basis points in June. Yes, I think that was quite clear. I think they've uh, telegraphed that quite clearly before this as well as in the statement. You are hardwired to a retail audience that has a monthly statement that comes in and they see bond prices down and yields up. How many months in a row of that grind do we need until all of a sudden it's a bond bear market for bond America? Well, I think that uh, it doesn't take very many months because uh, I agree. most most uh, investors are pretty sensitive to down prices on their statements. And what's so good with your work at LSC where you know the history is three months in a row of bond prices down on statements is different at 7% nominal than it is at 3% nominal. Yes. I think the other thing is there's a flip side to it, which is 
many investors have been waiting for higher interest rates. And they're actually a little bit pleased to see the fact that on a two-year treasury, you're now getting 2.5%. And that actually looks pretty good compared to other things out there in the marketplace. So, when, so, there's, so a, when, there's another side to this. Okay, well. so then when they see all the advertisements for uh, certificates of deposit offering 2% for whatever many years, uh, do they give you a call and say, tell us what products you have that can get us this kind of interest rate? Well, we do offer CDs, so we are seeing, But I mean, you're getting those calls. Yeah, we are getting those calls. People are saying, hey, this looks attractive, especially compared to the fact mm. that many rates at the bank are still near zero. What's so, a five-year CD now, roughly? Any I, idea? I don't have any idea. Oh, good. I don't so, have sorry. any idea either. But the answer is... <laughs> higher than it was. <laughs> you, you, you could see that my hands on radio. Yeah. Teensy-weensy. Yeah. But, is what we're doing. What are you going to are you going to pull out the paper and look at the yield? Yeah. I'm going to show you the ads. They're full page ads in newspaper in the in the journal and a lot of yeah. you know yeah. talking about how much that you can get and it says you know two point X percent and that's right. a lot of money, Kate. Well, when you think about it, with inflation still at two percent, at least you're getting a positive yield okay. above inflation. Well, let's let's meld your economics in now with this this real world yield dynamic for the public, and that is okay. Rates higher. But every single person listening is going to go, I get it, but inflation's going up too. Yes. So where's the real yield go? What is the Edward D. Jones bet on a larger inflation-adjusted yield? Is it going to happen? Uh, we think inflation actually stays pretty contained because of all the extraordinarily comp high competition in marketplaces. Companies keep saying they're not able to raise prices, uh, and in many cases, their input costs are going mm -hmm. up. We're seeing disruptive competition in markets. Think Amazon, but in high, other places High too. real full faith and credit yield. High real corporate yield, quality corporate bond yield. You're going to yes. see a real yield. Yes. We think that it's not, high is not exactly the term I'd use. That's but, fair. But better, positive. Better. So, better yes. and positive. And, and so I'm saying, I think there's lots of dynamics, including global growth and the fact we're seeing more products, services from more places that keep prices moving up very slowly and therefore you do get you don't see a dramatic increase in long-term rates or short-term rates even as the fed raises mm -hmm. rates and that's why yes you get a better real yield do you we're saying say store shorter on the on the uh yield curve on the uh duration in order to not get hit by the rising rates do your customers have a lot of cash to do all the things you're describing uh they have some cash they've stayed pretty fully invested so they're not so where does all cash. the new money come from? What do they have to sell in order to execute? Um, I think it's that they still have cash, uh, you know, sitting in savings accounts or in uh, mm -hmm. in cash accounts in other places that they didn't really think of investment money and now it looks more attractive to invest that money. Really? And even with the idea that interest rates will continue to increase, you just said they're going to increase in June 25 basis points. Yes. Why not wait and get a higher interest rate. Why do anything, let's say, between now and the end of the summer? Well, I'd say it depends on what you're doing. We'd still be saying putting money, put money, put into money equities. in the, in equities, put, putting money in, in equities, and keep some in these short-term fixed-income uh, accounts because what you're trying to get is a better return than what you've gotten yeah. recently. Kate Warren, thank you so much. With thank that, you. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. It has been far too long since I harassed Shannon Cross of Cross Research
who writes brilliant, detailed reports on all these technological wonders we talk about every day. Her acuity is off the chart. We're thrilled that Shannon Cross would join us today on a company shifting from growth to valueness. As Dennis Gartman said yesterday, maybe it'll be a widows and orphan stock someday. And that would be Fortress Cook. Shannon, good morning. Is is Apple, is it a widows and orphans stock now or is it going to be one someday? Well, I think what, what Apple has done, and, and it's nice to speak with you again, by the way, um, what what Apple has done is, is basically moved into and trying to move into this concept of recurring revenue stability. You know, we've talked about it for years about the ecosystem and the value that's there. But, you know, they, they really have put together a very, yeah. very solid platform. And so, you know, over time, you know, especially with an increasing dividend yield, which we, or well, increasing dividend payment, we should say, because it depends on what stock price is at. You know, it's it's one of those that I think can be, yeah. I don't know, if widows and children <clears throat> sort of makes it sound really boring. But, you know, I think I would go with stable and predictable. Are, have you done a sum of the parts of valuation? Some of your partners in crime, I think it's Gene Munster years ago at Piper Jaffrey, have done a sum of the parts analysis of Apple. Has Cross Research wandered through that exercise? We have it because we don't, when you look at some of the parts, and, and honestly, I, I mean, going back 20 years ago when I was on, you know, Wall Street at a big bank, and, and we did some of the parts and came up with huge valuations that never came to fruition because you have to be willing to separate the company. And I don't think Apple, you know, wants yeah, to separate. Fair, They're much fair, stronger as, fair. you know, a whole. Uh, Shannon, I want to understand a little bit about Apple and its pricing, because there were a lot of comments about the iPhone 10 and how it was mispriced. Do you believe it was mispriced? You know, I think that it was priced appropriately for the units that they are selling. I think the street, though, kind of got it wrong in terms of thinking about, you know, there was this huge addressable market at over $1,000. I think for Apple, they want to have product at all, you know, at many different levels along the, the price line. And so, you know, they go down below 400 and they obviously go above 1000 now. And so, you know, I think that they were testing a new price point. We now know sort of where the elasticity of demand is. And frankly, the company was very happy because they noted that the iPhone 10 was the best seller during every week during the quarter all the way through March. So, you know, there's a lot of demand for it. I think what it indicated to us is that there was a fair amount of demand for the iPhone 7 and perhaps not as much for the iPhone 8. Shannon, does it also indicate that Wall Street analysis of Apple is basically flawed? I'm not sure it's flawed. I think people get pretty, you know, there's a hype factor around it. Um, You know, our numbers were always frankly, uh, a little bit below where, where people were at, and they kind of came in closer to us. Um, but, you know, again, it, it's such a stable company with such cash flow that, you know, investors, I think, see through some of the hype that comes out of the sell side on the name. I mean, I, I look, Shannon, at the company, and part of it comes down to, as you say, recurring revenue. I take real offense when the media particularly goes breathlessly, oh, $999 or $400 or whatever, a cell phone. Nobody I know is doing that. Everybody signs up for this monthly plan racket. That's a source of recurring revenue, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, from 
from a carrier perspective, clearly that's been going on for a long time. Apple now has the upgrade program. You know, this concept of device as a service is not um, unique to Apple alone. I mean, it obviously started with smartphones and that with the carriers. Yeah. But all of the companies we cover are starting to talk more and more, whether it's PCs, if it's data center spend. Everything is going to a ratable, well, they would like it to, go to a ratable um, kind of pricing because, again, it provides predictable, stable revenue. Is that true? Um, that was where I, I knew you were going to go there, Shannon. But is there evidence that Apple has more persistent cash flows and dividend growth and share buyback because we're spending $45.10 for one of the eight iPhones we're paying for? I think absolutely. And I think that the other thing that happens is when you go to a monthly fee, again, whether it's Apple or others, people are seeing it much easier to upsell the customer because, you know, oh, really? you're paying $45. Well, now you're paying $50. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Shannon, you, Shannon, you know, you, it, it's easy. You misspoke, Shannon. You mean to upsell the teenager? Yeah. <laughs> upsell the teenager? Frankly, you know, it. it Yes, it's easier for me to oh, tell yes. my kid they can get a better phone. <laughs> you mean upsell, basically upsell everybody that really isn't paying for the whole the whole uh, Got plan? Got that right, uh, Shannon. Um, when is Tom Keen going to wake up with uh, Apple EarPod earbuds uh, in, like in his ears? Good question. You know, I have to say, net of the I, 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 for what it's worth, net of the iPhone, I think the AirPods are the best product that Apple's. You're kidding watch. Rip oh, up the I script. Come on, the rip AirPods. up the script. Let's go here. Tell people, tell why. people why and why Tom is going to be wearing one oh, pair in a couple of months. I ski with them. I ride my bike with them. I can do conference calls with them on a tram in an airport. They're they're a really really good product. They're not cheap, and you have to make sure you don't lose them. Wait wait a minute. If I get ear what do you call them? Ear pod. Ear pod. Ear pods. If I get ear pods, does that mean I have to work out? It means you have to return phone calls, I guess. But you can listen to music. <laughs> oh. they're, they're a great, um, I mean, they, they just work really, really well. And they work well with my phone, too, and, or my watch. So, and now I sound like I'm, I'm you know, selling Apple products. But me, that, they are really good. But Shannon, you, no, but Shannon, but here's the point, and, and you make it very uh, anecdotally, is that they have created this system where they've got your ears, your wrist, and your eyes. And uh, I don't even want to think about other parts of your anatomy that they might end up, you know, uh, taking over. But Apple has managed to do something that I can't imagine any other company, at least currently, being able to do. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, they 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 really are again, very sort of comprehensive in terms of how we work with it. You know, and, and think about it, like wearables are now the size of a Fortune 300 company, which, you know, they weren't a few years ago. So it's not just me. I mean, there's a lot of people who are who are buying the incremental right. products that Apple provides. Buy, hold, sell. What's your target, please? Uh, our target is 200. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to be a nice... Uh, nice year for Apple, sort of slow and steady upward, especially with the the share repurchase support. Shares of, Sh- uh, shares of Apple you. are one seventy five, so so headed to two hundred. Okay. Can I want to ask one other, one quick question here? Apple Watch was this a footnote that the Apple Watch is the best selling watch in the world, Shannon? I don't know if it's a footnote, but I think it's it's indicative of you know I think Apple over time wants. Whether it's theirs or somebody else's, everybody to have a device on their wa- on their wrist that tracks your health and that helps you communicate. And I think the Apple yeah. Watch gets you part of the way there. Obviously, there are FDA and other issues that they have to get through from more of the health right. perspective. Shannon, thank you so much. Shannon Cross, Cross Research on Apple. Over at Jeffries, uh, Mr. Litvak, previous conviction, also reversed on appeal. 
uh, serving a two-year prison sentence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.